I want to begin with a question this morning, and the question is this, what's so special about being human? What's so special about being human? Given all that God has made, given the incredible intricacies of a daffodil, for example, or the awe-inspiring greatness of the Milky Way, what's so special about being human? I mean, after all, don't some of us, and I'm guilty of this, almost assign human-like qualities to our family pets, the way we speak to them and the way we speak about them. So what makes us as humans different? And this is the question we want to address this morning in our third week of our series called Uncreated, Created. You'll remember that two weeks ago we began by focusing on the uncreated God, the only being, the only person, the only thing in existence that is uncreated. And we said that our only hope of having a right understanding of ourselves and our only hope of rightly identifying who we are and whose we are and where we are and the meaning of life requires us first to understand who God is, to orient our lives and our identity and our purpose and our mission and the meaning of life off of who God has revealed himself to be. God is the one being who is eternal and unchanging, the one who created everything else, the one in whom all things find their identity and their purpose, the eternal triune God. Therefore, our goal in this series is really to understand who God is, to glimpse a new maybe for the first time or maybe for the 5,000th time, to have the curtain pulled back a little bit in our minds and in our hearts to be able to see who God is as he reveals himself in his word. And that is an incredibly daunting task. As I've been spending a few weeks now studying this, first for the sermon two weeks ago and then Last week, Tara and I were out of town to, I officiated at a wedding, and so we were joining you all virtually Sunday morning in our little hotel room, streaming in, and then studying for this week. It's, it's almost been overwhelming to me as I see once again the glory of God, the greatness of God, the grandeur of God, the majesty and power and holiness of who God is. So our goal in this series is that we might understand and and turn our eyes upon who God is, especially given how distracted we can easily be, how little we can tend to think of God, and how rare we can think of Him. So our goal is to think once again on God. Have the Word of God form us and shape us according to His truth, what He's revealed about himself to us, and that we would be people profoundly impacted by what we see there. So we began there on that first week. And then we want to see how each thing in our created world finds its identity, its meaning, its purpose 
in the God who created it. And so last week, Pastor Nick Runlet faithfully and compellingly led us through Genesis 1 to see the power and the goodness and the glory of our creator God reflected in his creation. We learned that God created all things and declared them to be good because they fulfilled his God-given purpose. We were challenged, weren't we, to see how our creation helps us to worship as we look at our creation and remember the God who made all things. We were challenged to look at the creation and to loosen our grip on the things of this earth, to see how fleeting and passing it is. We saw how understanding who God is and how he has created our world helps us to endure suffering and how it helps us to look ultimately to Jesus Christ. Now this morning now, I want to turn to a specific part of God's good creation. We want to look at the creation of humans, you and me. So our title this morning is Created by and for God. That will be our outline, Created by and for God. I'll just apologize right up front. There's no slides this morning. We're going to go old school. You can just take notes. Um, yeah, some sermons come together more like a science, and some are more like an art, and some are more like a 1 a.m. Sunday morning art that isn't still coming together until the last minute. So we didn't have time for slides, so you just listen and follow along. But this morning, we're going to look at how we are created by and for God. We're going to begin by looking at what does it mean to be created by God, and then turn and apply that as we seek to understand what does it mean to be created for God. So look with me, if you would, at Genesis chapter 1. I want to read again verses 26 and 27. Not because Judy didn't do a beautiful job of reading that for us, but because repetition is a good thing. And then we're going to move over to the next column or the next page to Genesis chapter 2 and read the corollary text in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. So first, Genesis 1, 26, the word of the Lord says, Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And now chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the, from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Before we get into the specifics of what these two passages tell us, it might be helpful to note that this is not just needless repetition. You might be wondering, how come in Genesis 1 we have the account of creation, and then in Genesis 2, we have the account of creation. 
Well, the reason is because both of these accounts give us complementing information. Information that we wouldn't have if we only had Genesis 1 or we only had Genesis 2. If it's helpful, you can think of Genesis 1 as an overview of God's creating work. And then in Genesis 2, we're kind of zooming in specifically on the creation of humanity. And what we see so clearly is that we are created by God. In fact, I think these two texts give us at least four ways that we are created by God. God. First, we are created by God from the dust of the ground. Chapter 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. Dust. Yes, it actually says dust, which is not flattering at all, is it? Dust is all around us, writes author author Andrew Wilson. But unless we work in construction, we hardly ever see it. And when we do, it's usually because we're trying to get rid of it, sweeping, dusting, cleaning behind the fridge. And yet, as unflattering as it is, dust is what we are made of. And dust is primarily probably unflattering because dust is, if you've ever thought about it this way, essentially from decay. And yet the very first time the Bible speaks of us being made of dust, it's actually in reference to life. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Here it's the image of the potter. Maybe you've tried your hand at pottery yourself in art class or Maybe you've tried to block that out of your memory. Maybe you've been somewhere like Pigeon Forge and you've watched amazed at the skill of a potter turning a blob of clay into something intricate and beautiful. And this is what scripture says we are. More specifically, this is what scripture says God does. We are made by the very hand of God, formed by the divine. Which, if you think about it, has some pretty significant implications for our relationship to God. This potter-clay relationship was a common metaphor we read of throughout Scripture. For example, in Isaiah 26, 16, the Lord God says to rebellious Israel, to his rebellious children, he says this, shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he didn't make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. And the obvious answer is that would be ridiculous for the pot or the clay to say to the potter, you didn't make me. I just willed myself into existence. Just came to be of my own work and effort and energy. No, that's crazy. In fact, several chapters later, after giving light to the prophet Isaiah, the prophet speaks on behalf of the people when he declares, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. You see, being made from the dust of the ground is humbling, isn't it? Now think about it like this. What's the value of humanity? 
physically speaking. Just physically. It's not much. I mean, your body, even if you are a specimen of a human being, may have some small value to medical science. But you are just a collection physically of molecules, dust, clay. You see, our value doesn't come physically from the fact that we are valuable on our own inherently. Our value lies in the fact that we are valued. We are endowed by our God, our creator God, with worth and value and dignity. Why? Not just because we've been physically formed by our creator God, but because this creator God has actually given us life. Which leads us To our second point this morning, we see not only that we are created by God from the dust of the ground, but we are created by God by his breath, or by the breath of God. Again, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Before God breathed into this man's lungs, what was he? He was formed dust. He was simply a collection of matter. He was material but not spiritual. He was a body without a mind or a soul. He was lifeless. And then God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and instantaneously the formed dust became a living creature with a mind and a soul, a creature that thought things and felt things and desired things. So what was it that made the difference? The difference was the breath of the living creator, God. Apart from God, he was just formed dust. Maybe intricate formed dust, maybe special formed dust, but formed dust nonetheless. The difference was the breath of God that gave him life. In fact, I think we can look a little closer at what this breath of God means and what it represents. The breath of life in Psalm 104 and Ezekiel 37 remind us of the evidence that God is the one who creates and restores life. In fact, we don't have time to go there, so you can just jot down Ezekiel 37 for extra credit study this afternoon. But in Ezekiel 37, God gives the prophet Ezekiel this vision of a valley of dry bones, of death. And it represents the people of God who are failing to trust in God, who think that they can make it on their own, who actually think that they, as the, as the clay, can say to the potter, you didn't make me. And God says, they are dead. And he reveals to Ezekiel that the only way that they can be brought to life is by God giving his breath to Ezekiel And then Ezekiel going and declaring the living word of God, breathing out the living word of God to the valley of dry bones so that God can breathe into these dead bodies and recreate life. God's breath not only creates life, but it recreates life. 
One author wrote, God is spirit. Thus, when God breathed into Adam, Adam and all later humans became a unique mix of both the physical and the spiritual. In fact, this is just one of the ways that we are actually unique. We are unlike anything else that God has created in this way. We are physical and we have the breath of God's life inside of us. We are body and we are soul, which means we are also able to receive a new heart as God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, breathes into our hearts, creating new life. Wasn't that what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3 when Jesus sat down with Nicodemus, this Jewish religious leader who was wondering how in the world he might In fact, enter the kingdom of God. Jesus told him that he needed to be born again. And Nicodemus is trying to imagine how he, as a grown adult human, might enter into his mother's womb a second time. And Jesus said to him, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Which means two things. First, it means that we cannot manipulate the work of God. We can't boil the work of God down like Charles Finney in church history tried to do. This is how you can guarantee someone will be saved. Say these words, play this music, do this very thing, and then they will automatically be saved. No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus says the new birth of God is It's like the wind. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We know that we're called to go and make disciples of all nations and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. But how it is that as we proclaim and as we go and as we teach and speak the word of God and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that some walk away hardened and some repent and believe? Jesus says it's a mystery. That's the work of the Spirit. We don't control that. We don't harness that. That's God's doing. That's part of what I think Jesus is getting at. I think the other part of what Jesus is getting at is this is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. The very breath of God as God breathes out by his spirit to create new life. How do we explain God's drawing and softening and saving power? How do we explain his irresistible grace which pulls at our dead hearts? Jesus said it's the result of the Holy Spirit of God, the wind of God, the breath of God, which seems likely then why later on, when the Holy Spirit is given broadly to all believers on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes with a mighty, rushing, what? Wind. Symbolic of the Holy Spirit's power. God breathing out his spirit into those who believe. In fact, not incidentally, the Bible you hold in your hands is also God-breathed. It's why the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed, and then later the author of Hebrews can add that because of this, the Bible, scripture, is living and active. Now, here's probably a really good place to stop and add the reminder that although we have been given life through the breath of God, 
We are not, nor will we ever be, God. In fact, the Lord gave the prophet Isaiah this vision of the day of the Lord to come when God would bring justice to the world and when those who reject him would be punished and those who trust him will be saved. And he was sent to warn the people of that day to come. And he was sent to a people, the people of God, who put all of their trust and were putting all of their hope and all of their confidence into earthly people, political leaders, military leaders, even religious leaders. Which leads Isaiah to exclaim in Isaiah 2.22, stop regarding or stop trusting in man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Summarized, stop trusting in your political leaders. Stop trusting in your military leaders. Stop trusting for salvation even in your religious leaders because what are they? They're just individuals in whose nostrils is breath that God has to give them. Otherwise, they're dust. Look instead to the God who is the giver of life. Put your trust and your hope and your confidence in him. Don't you think that, as Pastor Jeff reminded us in prayer, we just might need that reminder even in 2024. We are still the created, not the uncreated. We are still and always will be the clay. The Lord alone is the potter. So we've seen that we are made from the dust of the ground. We've seen that we are created by the breath of God. Third, we see here that we are created in the image of God. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. The Lord, or then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It seems as though God, as he is inspiring Moses to write, wants us to know that we as humans are made in the image of God. In fact, three times in these two verses, we read in our English that we are created in the image of God. Verse 26, let us make man in our image. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Which brings up a couple of important questions that inquiring minds like yours are probably asking. First, what is the image of God? Which is a really good question. After all, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. And especially since Moses here is writing before Jesus takes on flesh? Seems like a reasonable question, right? The second question is, how are we made in the image of God? So what is the image of God, and then how are we made in the image of God? First, what is the image of God? Especially as we said, since God is spirit, he doesn't have a physical body, not at least until God the Son became incarnate in Bethlehem. Well, it's clear that the image of God doesn't refer narrowly only to what we can see. 
It can mean that to some degree. After all, the Bible uses metaphors to explain the unseen God to us using things like the arm of God or the face of God or the hand of God. But since God is spirit, the image of God must mean something more. We do know that from all eternity, God exists as a triune God. God is triune, always has been, always will be. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, eternally existing, no beginning and no end, in perfect fellowship, communing together in complete harmony. In fact, that word communing would be a really good key word. We're going to come back to that in a moment. So for us to be made in the image of God, it must have something to do with communing, with relating. We also know that our triune God has chosen to reveal himself. He's chosen to speak. He's chosen to tell us a bit of who he is and what he's like. In fact, some of you are going through a Sunday school class right now where you're learning about God's revealing, communicating work in and through Holy Scripture. So for us to be made in the image of God, it must have something to do not only with communing, it must have something to do with communicating. Because our God is a communicating God. Again, hold on to that word, communicating. So let's try to answer the question, the second question we asked, which is how are we made in the image of of God. We know that we are in the image of God. We see that here in Genesis chapter 1. We see it again even in places like Genesis 5, which says when God created man, he created him in the likeness or image of God. So how are we made in the image of God? Quick little extra credit tidbit. This won't be on the test. But historically, theologians have answered this question in one of two ways or sometimes both of the following ways. First, to be made in the image of God means we are created to relate to God. Or to borrow the language we used a minute ago that I asked you to hold on to, we are created to commune with God, to have a relationship with God. Just as the triune God has always been in fellowship, we are now created and made to have fellowship and relationship with God the God who made us. And there's strong biblical evidence for this. For example, we are the only created beings given a spirit. We are the only created living beings who have the capacity for a personal relationship with the creator God. In fact, we see this even how this is distorted in Genesis chapter three with the fall where humanity can no longer walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day, as Adam did, but must come to him only through the shed blood of a perfect sacrifice. To be created in the image of God means we are created to commune with God. Secondly, being made in the image of God means we are made to represent God or image God. God to each other and the world. Or again, to borrow the language, the other word I told you to hold on to a minute ago, we are created to communicate to one another, to the world, to the creation around us. We are created to communicate who God is and what he is like. 
And I think we see evidence for this in the fact that after making both statements here about being made in the image of God in Genesis 1, the very next statement both times pertains to having dominion and reigning and ruling and having authority over the rest of creation. Therefore, there is a sense in which we are to be to the rest of creation what God is to us. That can be a really dangerous statement because we are not God, nor will we ever be God. Creation itself, like the heavens and the mountains and the trees of the field, the Bible says, declare the glory of God. In fact, Jesus in John 19.40 declares that if his worshipers are silent, even the rocks will cry out. We are created in the image of God, which means we are created to commune with God, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are created to communicate, to reflect, this is our God. This is the God who made all things in the way we live and work and think and dream and plan, speak, to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, Some theologians have made a distinction. They've chosen either the commune meaning, this is what it means to be made in the image of God, it means to commune with God. Or what it means to be made in the image of God is to communicate who God is and what he's like. It's one or the other. Yet there are others, and I would put myself in this category, who think that there's really good biblical evidence for both. What it means to be created in the image of God contains both of these aspects, both of communing with God and communicating who God is and what he is like to the world around us. And there's one more thing to note here about how we are made by God, and that is to note that we are made by God forth, male and female. Male and female. I won't spend much time here because Pastor Taylor is going to cover this in a couple of weeks. However, it is good to note here that both Men and women bear the image of God, and one does not bear the image of God more than the other, which should tell us something as a church that we desperately need each other, men and women. We might see, savor, and celebrate the glory of God as it's reflected to us. So, now that we have seen how we are made by God, let's try to draw all of us together by looking at why we are created. Or to put it another way, we've tried to answer the question, the fact that we are created by God, but now let's look at why we are created by God or that we are created for God. What does it mean to be created for God? But first, and this is probably obvious, but we were clearly created, number one, to glorify God. We are created for God to glorify God. Glory is one of those words, and glorify is one of those kind of churchy, theological, biblical words that we oftentimes don't use outside of church or Christian or spiritual conversations. And I'll go on record in saying that I'm one of those that think we actually should keep our theological churchy words, and we should just learn and teach one another what those mean rather than take those out and try to, try to use some other word that kind of fits our culture and our times because glory is a, is a tremendous word. Glory could be defined. There's lots of 
good definitions, but one that I like is the weight of splendor. Glory is the weight, the weightiness, the significance, the substance, the, the gravity of splendor. And we see this in all kinds of different ways. We do this in all kinds of different ways. I shared in the first service this morning, at a risk of applying this in a very trivial, trivial way to something that is incredibly glorious, like the glory of God, but just to show you how relevant and applicable this is, I have been a lifelong Detroit Lions fan, (laughs) which is not glorious, except today, perhaps. And today, I and the other three Lions fans that live in Ohio (laughs) will be focused on a silly game with a ball, right? That will not matter in light of all of eternity for anything. But I will stand and I will cheer or I will cry and I will weep or I will do some of both for a couple of hours this afternoon because there is something worthwhile to me that's happening on a screen 250 miles away. But what will I be doing in that moment? I will be declaring and expressing through my words, through my actions, through my standing, through my sitting, through my arm movements, through the things I say, through my my focus and intensity, I will be demonstrating the glory of a team, the people on a field that I don't even know, right? And that's not bad or wrong. God has created all kinds of good gifts in his common grace for us. And if you're a fan of a better team, that's maybe a better common grace, but we, we glorify things all the time, and we glory in things all the time. We do that when we pull up our phone and we show people pictures of our grandkids. Like, oh, let me just throw you, I've got a couple hundred more I want to get through, right? They're just my, my grandkids, or my pet, right? Now look at my puppy. Look at how cute he is. Or we do this when we go to a restaurant and we have an amazing meal, and then we rave about it to our friends. We tell them about it. We, we want them to enjoy. We want them to have the same enjoyment that we have found. And so we talk about it and we share about it. We post online about it. We are glorifying or glorying in that restaurant. And so glory is something that we can't help but doing. I mean, even the atheist glories in his or her own intellect. My intellect is so great that I can decide as clay as dust, form dust, that there is no God in my vast intellect, right? We all glory, because we were created to be worshipers, and we're worshiping all the time. So to glorify the Lord means to demonstrate the incredible weight of his importance and splendor. It means showing with our lives and our words and our songs and our attitudes and our dreams that God is truly, incredibly, unimaginably splendid and wonderful and magnificent. The fact that we are created for God means that we are created for showcasing his glory, the weight of his splendor. He is the potter, we are the clay. Which is why we sing sometimes words like the old hymn, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. And so we glorify God by enjoying him. We glorify God through our thankfulness. Every time we express gratitude for something that God has given to us. And we rightly acknowledge God as the giver of every good and perfect gift. 
We're glorifying him. We glorify God through our obedience, even when it's hard, even when we don't understand. We glorify God in our submission to him. I had a friend this week helpfully remind me that submission really isn't submission if we agree. Submission is only submission fundamentally if we, if we don't like it or if we disagree or if we have a different point of view. And then when God calls us to submit, rubber meets the road. What do we do in those moments when we choose to still yield to God and submit to him? We're glorifying him. We're declaring the weight of his splendor as so much more than our own. When we trust confidently in his promises, even through the tragedies of life. We bring glory to God. We glorify him by demonstrating that there is a God who is good, who is true to his promises. He is faithful and can be relied upon. Secondly, and I'm going to speed way up. Somehow I got way behind. Probably on the lions or something. I'm silly and trivial. Created for God to glorify God. We are created for God to delight in his intentionality. Think about it like this. Everything else that was created was brought into existence by the word of God. But with humanity, God didn't speak us into creation, did he? He formed us. He formed the man from the dust of the ground. Later in chapter 2, verse 22, which Pastor Taylor is going to preach more on, God himself will make a woman from the rib of the man. Truly, we are crafted and created, according to Psalm 139, verse 15, intricately woven together in our mother's womb. It's, it's as if his direct personal involvement is especially important. Third, Being created for God means we are created to faithfully bear his image. How do we do that? We do that by communing with him, by relating to him, by loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This begins with the gospel itself, to turn from our sin, to recognize there is a holy creator God whom we have sinned against and we have no hope of making ourselves right with God and reconciling back to God that our only hope is the finished work of Jesus through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Trusting in him by faith. And then it means communicating with him. Spending time with him in his word, with his people, in prayer. One of the things I'm passionate about for us as a church this year is that we would grow in our prayerfulness, not just as individuals, but as a church. One of the ways we're working to make that happen, Pastor Matt and I are working on, is through quarterly prayer and praise nights. Getting together once a quarter on Sunday nights, not for the purpose of preaching or instruction, but for the purpose of prayer, testimony, praise. We also faithfully bear God's image by living in light of who we are as we communicate, this is our God. This is what he is like. So we seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, as Micah 6.8 reminds us. So many of Paul's letters we read, the first half, are filled with all of the indicatives. This is who you are in Christ. And then the second half is filled with the imperatives. So walk this way, live this way, think this way. I'm excited that here in four weeks, Lord willing, we're going to begin a series through the book of Colossians so that we can see firsthand how these indicatives and imperatives fit together and see what it looks like to faithfully Bear the image of God as his people. But here's the reality. 
as those who are reading this now on the other side of the cross from when Moses wrote this. We are not only keenly aware that we all fall short at truly, faithfully, rightly demonstrating who God is or truly, faithfully, and fully loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And our incredibly good news is that God the Father has provided Jesus Christ, whom Hebrews tells us is the exact imprint of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But Jesus doesn't just provide us an example to look at, because if that were the case, we would all be the most depressed people on earth. Because like, you know, remember the old WWJD bracelets? It was big when I was in high school. Try to be like Jesus. And every time you look at that, you're reminded all the ways you fall short of being like Jesus. We are reminded, maybe even looking at a bracelet, that we cannot actually be like Jesus in every way. And that's the point. Only Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the perfect substitute who died in our place so that all who trust in him might have forgiveness and freedom. That all who trust in him might find rest even when we fail. That we might find forgiveness in our repentance. You see, Jesus was not formed from the dust of the ground, but he used the dust of the ground to heal, didn't he? Jesus didn't come to life through the breath of God. He is eternal, but he breathed on his followers and he gave them his Holy Spirit. Jesus is the answer. As we seek to be men and women who live lives as the created, in light of the uncreated God. Perhaps one of the best pieces of news we could receive this morning are the very words of Psalm 103, 13. Our Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Your Lord, your creator, remembers that you are dust. He knows your frame. He knows your weaknesses, shortcomings, failures. And in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. There's freedom. There's rest. As we seek to be the people of God who commune and communicate the glory of God to a watching world. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, our God, when we look at the vast creation that you have made and when we reflect even for a moment on our own lives, it leads us to say how great you are, how great thou art. (laughs) It's your breath in our lungs. It's your life that you give to us. We are who we are because of you and for you. We thank you that you are not just the distant creator, but that you are the intimate father. 
the perfect Father, who through the work of Jesus, your Son, has drawn us close to yourself. May that fill us with even greater awe of you. And God, I pray that as we seek to walk as a church that longs to honor and glorify you, that longs to make you known in this community and around the world, that you would both give us strength and that you would give us grace. And thank you that we find both all that we could ever need through the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer and friend. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 You are dismissed. Go in peace.